seat. And it would be helpful if you could turn to uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, page 1042, and uh, at that reading that we had. And as you find that, let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we look more deeply at your word to us, we pray that you would open our ears to hear it and our hearts to respond in accordance with your will and to your glory. Amen. Well, imagine the scene. It's uh, 6.20pm. It's already ten minutes past bath time. And so a harried parent is talking to the child at the dinner table. You can't have your pudding until you've eaten your peas. How many peas do I have to have? Three more spoonfuls. A single hapless pea is slowly edged onto the spoon and is reluctantly raised towards a less than enthusiastic mouth. That doesn't count. They've got to be big spoonfuls. You never said that. I'm saying it now. The parent waits for the inevitable follow-up. How many peas do you need for it to be a big? Just eat your peas. Of course, we never have conversations like that. Uh, But whether fictional or real, the child in the story is clearly showing no great love for green vegetables. Indeed, by trying to get away with the minimum possible pea consumption, they're just showing up the fact that they'd rather have none at all. It's just that the pudding on offer has been judged to be worth the inconvenience. We're looking today at the most famous short story ever told. A story so famous that its chief character has entered the English language. uh, The Good Samaritan. uh, That local hero who steps in to help out the stranger in need, at some cost to themselves. And yet it is a story that we'll never understand unless we first see the situation in which it was told. Because uh, the context of Jesus' words here is that you and I can be just like that child at the dinner table. Uh, Not with peas, but with God himself. Uh, So turn with me to Luke 10 and let's meet again this theologian, this expert in the Old Testament law, who one day has a question for Jesus. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? This man starts with a right desire. You'll see the first heading on the sermon outline that I hope you've got a copy of. Uh, He's interested in eternal life. He wants to benefit from it. And in that regard, I dare say that he's already one step up on many of us, uh, whether we're Christians here today or not. One of the questions we always start with when we run our Christianity Explored course for those wanting to know more about Jesus is this. If you could ask God one question and knew it would be answered, what would you ask? 
Uh, It's a great question to start to get people thinking and to allow them to set the agenda for the discussions over the weeks to come. But I, I have to say that I've never heard a question like this. For our one question to God to be, oh, how can I enjoy eternal life with you? Uh, so often our questions for God are accusatory. Why did you do this? Why do you allow that? Or often they're just sceptical. How can I know you're there? Why don't you show yourself to me? Or often they're focused just on the short term. How is being a Christian going to help me today? And they're good questions, questions that we'd love to take time to talk over with you if they're yours today. But you see, this man is already happy with those things. He knows that God is there. He knows that God is good. He knows that life with God is something that is to be valued. This man has a good desire. What's more, he's asking the right person when he comes to Jesus. And he's already got an answer from the right place. It is knowledge of God's word. For all of this man's mistakes, and we'll come on to them shortly, I wonder if we shouldn't be challenged by his perspective. And here I'm talking not just to the non-Christian, but to the Christian. How easy it is for us to go through a day, a week, a summer holiday, without giving so much as a second thought to eternity. If we're honest, do we spend more time checking the weather forecast and planning for tomorrow than we do planning for life everlasting? This man has a right desire, eternal life as his goal. But as we move on, we see he has entirely the wrong question. Because like the little child who wants the pudding and so will put up with the peas... This man wants eternal life and so now he wants to know how little is required of him in order to get there. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying, uh, how much is enough when it comes to living for God? I suppose we're already a little suspicious of this expert in the law as we're told he's trying to test Jesus but it's his question itself that really exposes his heart what must I do to inherit eternal life for all his right desire to know God forever this man thinks that the key will be in something he does but of course you can't do anything in order to inherit something The key to an inheritance is not our action, but rather our relationships. You or I might want to inherit the throne of England and become the next king or queen. But there's nothing we can do about it. You are either next in line or not. Uh, That's why I think that in answering this first question, Jesus points to not things to do, but a relationship. A relationship of love between us and God uh, that leads as well to love for our neighbour. Do this and you will live, he says. Just look again at verse 27. What is your reaction to those two commands? Elsewhere, Jesus uh, describes them as summing up the whole of the Old Testament law. Do we measure up to them? 
If this is what it takes to gain the inheritance, if this is what it is to be a child of God, then are we in? Well, perhaps when faced with that sort of question, we're just like this man. We want a little bit more clarification. He wants to know exactly what's required of him, that the limits of love. Who is my neighbour, he says. How many peas make up a spoonful? Why does he ask it? Well, we're told because he wanted to justify himself. He wants to know how much is enough so that he can do it and then rest easy. He's saying, how few neighbours can you get away with? Who are the people that I need to love? Who are the people that I don't need to love? Of course, he doesn't even ask about the first commandment there, to to love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Uh, Perhaps he assumed he was okay on that score. Or perhaps he sees that our love for our neighbour is just an outworking of our love for God, so that really the two come together. His question here, what lies behind it is this, how much do I have to love God in order to enjoy his inheritance? But as with the child at dinner, even to think like that is to betray the fact that he doesn't love God at all. Uh, From time to time I stand on the step down there in front of a prospective bride and groom in their wedding service. And before we get to the bit where they're pronounced husband and wife, I ask the husband this. Will you love her, comfort her, honour and protect her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Well, imagine if the answer came back, well, how much do I have to love her? What are the situations where I won't need to? How will I know that I've done it enough? Such a man would not be starting married life with his mother-in-law on side. (laughs) And yet, do we do the same with God? Do we say to him, "Ah, I want something from you. What's the minimum? that you require. Perhaps we don't think we do, but uh, let's have a think about how this same attitude that we see in the expert in Luke 10 might show itself in us. See, his attitude is our attitude as well if we see the Christian faith as being primarily a list of rules to keep, a benchmark to be met, rather than a relationship with Jesus to enjoy. Or we'll know that it's our attitude as well. If when we go through times of hardship or difficulty, when we lose our job or lose a loved one or miss out on something that we'd hoped for, our reaction is, why is God letting this happen to me? To me, rather than to other people. See what lies behind that thinking? I've been good. God owes me. I've done enough. Why is this happening to me? Or again, this loveless attitude towards God is ours. If we are thinking to ourselves, I will obey God in one area of my life, but I will not obey him in this area. He can have so much, but no more. In each case, we're trying to justify ourselves. 
trying to place limits on our love, limits on obedience, limits which are low enough that we can meet them. And so to us, as to this expert, Jesus tells a parable. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Oh, this road in question was notoriously dangerous, a 17-mile descent from Jerusalem down the hill to the affluent area of Jericho, a road that was remote and at times lined with caves that made it an excellent place for an ambush. Uh, So the story is all too familiar to Jesus' hearers as it begins with this man who falls into the hands of robbers and is beaten and left for dead. Uh, And then come two men, uh, both respected religious leaders of the day, uh, but who, as they see the man, do nothing. Uh, Well, not quite nothing. Uh, They take the time to cross over to the other side so that they give the man as wide a berth as possible. Now, commentaries on this passage suggest a variety of things that might have been going through their minds. Perhaps uh, concerns about touching the body of a corpse, since the man looked dead, uh, which would have left them ceremonially unclean for some time, unable to perform their duties in the temple. Or concerns, perhaps, that the man was just a decoy, and that it was they and not him who would be the target of robbers. Well, who knows? Uh, That sounds quite like the sort of self-justification that I employ when I decide not to help people. But the real reason they don't help is shown up by the one who does. In verse 33, we see that the Samaritan saw him and he took pity on him. Pity, compassion, mercy, that is the standard that Jesus sets for us here. What do you feel for people? Because we are surrounded by people in need of mercy, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Do we share this Samaritan's compassion for others? Or have we become calloused, perhaps through a lifetime of watching TV charity appeals, or seeing war-torn and famine-stricken countries? Are we dead to it now? Does each homeless person that we walk past in the street make the next one that bit easier to ignore? 
Now, look, I know some of these issues are far from simple. I've certainly heard people from homeless charities advising against giving cash to people on the streets uh, because, ironically, it can help keep them trapped there. I've driven past motorists sat in the hard shoulder uh, without really thinking of stopping, instead reckoning that help's probably on its way uh, and I wouldn't know what to do anyway. And when faced with the tragedy of millions starving or dying of AIDS or without clean water, it is easy to let the sheer scale of the problem stun us into inactivity. What point a small drop in such a large ocean It won't always be right to share our loose change or pull up on the hard shoulder or ring the donation line. But when we don't, is it really because we're motivated by compassion? I know that so often in my case, I walk past on the other side because I decide that I've done enough recently or that it's not my responsibility. Ultimately, it's because I don't care. And the application of this is much wider than to the homeless person or the hitchhiker. It is about our general attitude to others. What motivates us in the way that we behave towards other people? How do we view them? Uh, Let me give you one other example, and it's in evangelism. In telling others about Jesus Christ, encouraging them to turn to him for themselves. I remember one time listening to a man speaking about his work as an itinerant evangelist. He travels the country and occasionally outside explaining the Christian message. And he was asked in a sort of question and answer forum what the most important thing was in dealing with so many people and often for such a short period of time. And his answer was that in everything he did and said he wanted to show that he was for them. He was on their side, that it wasn't them and us. I guess we can all picture in our minds that stereotype of the inconsiderate Bible basher who shows no love for the person he speaks to, but rams the message home. Well, is that close to home for us? Or when we speak to people about the Lord Jesus, will our kindness and concern for the people that we speak to be so evident that it adds that extra appeal to our message. In Jesus' parable, it was the religious types who were cold and cruel. May it not be true of us. Uh, By contrast, it is a Samaritan who is the true neighbour and a more offensive hero to the story Jesus could hardly have picked. Uh, Tensions between Jews and Samaritans had been around for centuries. Religious and racial differences, which had been hardened by acts of violence and religious hatred over the years. Indeed, if you just flick back one page to the top of 1041, you'll see James and John, two of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, offering to call fire down from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village. Such was the ingrained hatred. They seem to assume that Jesus will be all for it. Uh, Well, he turns and rebukes them. Of course, for us today, this parable is so well known that the term Samaritan has only positive connotations. 
But the equivalent a set of three people for us today would perhaps uh, be first to see uh, Paul, our vicar, uh, walk by on the other side. Uh, then next comes a committed Christian and small group leader. But same again. They walk past on the other side. Uh, but then they're followed by, well, perhaps the, the local imam. Or maybe it's the leader of the lesbian and gay Christian group. And they do what the others did not. See, for the expert in the law, being shown up by a Samaritan, albeit a fictional one, just adds to the sting of his own failure to love his neighbour. As this uh, standard of mercy and compassion is set and we realise that we fail it, to hear of someone who ideally we would have liked not to have been on the neighbour list, doing what we should not, makes our failure all the more acute. And also, do you see how Jesus flips uh, the man's question on its head? Uh, Jesus' question at the end is, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert wanted to know, well, who's my neighbour? Who do I need to love? Jesus answers, don't try to identify your neighbours. Instead, be a neighbour. You want to know who your neighbour is? Well, let me ask you, who have you shown this sort of compassion to recently? Hardly anyone is surely the man's response and surely ours today as well. Indeed, the challenge of this parable is one that we can't but fail. Not who is my neighbour, but to whom am I a neighbour? Do I show this sort of sacrificial, no-limits love and concern for others? Jesus sets the standard impossibly high. How much love is enough, Jesus? How much do I have to love God and others? Too much. Too much for us to do it. Too much for us to be able to justify ourselves. This parable does not serve to set for us our moral duty, which we then try to achieve. Instead, its purpose is to expose for us our moral bankruptcy before God. That we fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. And we fail to love God with all that we have and are. And so as I close, Jesus is showing us the only solution. The only solution is that we trust the Good Samaritan, Jesus himself. To be a Christian is to realise that you cannot justify yourself. You cannot hope to. More than that, we need to turn from that whole assumption which places God in our debt if we are good. That reduces our relationship with him to one of selfish self-interest. Only willing to obey him because of what we can get out of him in return. Only willing to love others because we want eternal life. Just like the child who eats the peas to get the pudding. I cannot justify myself. Instead, I must be justified by grace. By God's kind and loving intervention on my behalf. 
sending Jesus to remove my guilt and to pay the price of it himself on the cross. See, it is Jesus who is the true Good Samaritan. One who comes and who sees us half dead in our sin and rebellion and fallen world. And who has compassion. The one who lifts us up, who makes us well and who bears the cost of it all himself. It is Jesus who justifies. Jesus who we need. Jesus through whom we can inherit eternal life. And then, of course, if we trust him, then that grace does not stop on the day we turn to Christ. It then gets to work, changing and equipping us so that we are shaped by God into his likeness, ready to serve him, ready to love him with all our heart, soul, strength and mind, and like him, ready to love our neighbour as ourselves. Let's pray together. And we pray with words of a famous hymn. My song is love unknown. My saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I, that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Who are we indeed, Lord? As we see the standards of your excellence we realise the depths of our own weakness and evil. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and for the justification that he brings, that we can have eternal life with you. Please help us to delight in it, to delight in you, and to delight in serving you and others. Amen.